You're going to hate this, by the way. Oh, God. Does it rely on me knowing stuff? Yes. In hell, I'm completely out of the swanny. I don't know. I suspect you might not be. Oh, okay. <clears throat> it relies very much on you knowing stuff. It relies very much on you knowing stuff that you know. Right, but it's recalling names and things like that. Do we get on with it? Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> then we can find out. You'll one. see. Okay, I'll see. You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about things so you don't have to. <laughs> JR. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, and I'm tentatively Simon. Why tentatively? Because I have no idea what this podcast is going to be all about. Right, I did. Because... I'm thoroughly mad. <laughs> 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 well, this was supposed to be the Banks and Smith part two. Right. But David Banks got um, called upon to do some work, so we couldn't make the recording. Mm. So we've had to reschedule. And actually, we've just actually about an hour ago, fixed a date. So uh, that'll be happening in about a month's time. So instead of Banks and Smith, and because we had an opportunity to fill the week with something else, we've hastily convened with no plan about what to do. So I've had to come up with a plan. I hate these ones. Oh, before I go on though, insider podcasting, Andrew Smith, very likely won't be able to make the second Banks and Smith. So it won't be Banks and Smith. It'll be Banks and somebody else. But the somebody else has just confirmed as well an hour ago that they're happy to do it and they want to do it and they will be doing it. So I'm not going to say who it is. But as replacements go, it's one that should make people very happy, I would hope. Is it, is it Elton Tan and Jones again? Yes, it's Elton Tan and Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make you happy, Matt? No, it's fine. It's fine. You know. Uh, well, so I have thought of something we can do this evening. But before we do, the news just came out today. It'll be about a week out of date by the time this goes out. But it's still worth taking a couple of minutes over. So Chris Chibnall, just before we came out to record this tonight... Has just confirmed <clears throat> that the next series of Doctor Who will include amongst its writers the very first ever people of colour who've written for Doctor Who. <coughs> so obviously, well, he's he said the writing team consists of other than him. Well, I assume other than him. Maybe it means including him. Two women, three men, and the directing team: two women, two men. But amongst that writing team, the very first ever non-white person writing for Doctor Who, which I thought was worth going into for a couple of minutes. Not necessarily, well, maybe to discuss perhaps the reason why it hasn't happened before, but also to discuss maybe a little bit of a background concerning that sort of thing without getting into troubling territory or whatever mm. why is he not releasing names because it's not likely to be linked to like 
spoiling the actual series to know the names of the writers. Well, I just think it's a drip feed. Yeah, but isn't it? It's, but it's, this it's, wasn't. But the, but the names of the uh, the actual names of the writers. But there will isn't be going to be a big, a big, like promotional moment. No, but it's it will just be. Information. It will be a press release, and this wasn't a press release. He was simply yeah. asked, hmm. so he answered the question. Right. But the name naming the writers will take place in a press release. Yes. So he wasn't going to force spoil any forthcoming press release. Yeah. But he just answered the question that was put to him. I'm just wondering because there's obvious there's clear secrecy about it because the writers have been writing for for years for well for over a year presumably. Why 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 not release them earlier? Well, they've not well, announced any directors either. I just either, think it's, it's, it's giving out little scraps for everyone, as far as I'm yeah, concerned. It's, it's still three months I mean, before it comes on air. When they mm. announced the composer, the first thing I did was check out some of his previous work. So I think it's kind of... Yeah, yeah. and when there's a press release with writers' names in, people will be scrabbling around to... But, I mean, unless I he just, was going to name I, all five in one go today. No, I just wondered if it's a sign of the different, the different use of writers this year. And this is getting away from the people of colour thing. But um, if it's a writer's room, because before it was more writers attached to stories, so we'd have heard well, the judging by what identities he identities by now. Judging you know, by what he said, it'll be five episodes with written by somebody other than Chris Chibnall. Yeah. By the way he said it, that's what it sounds like it's going to be. Because mm. he, he, I think he said, no, I can't remember. The way he said it, it sounded like he said two episodes have been written by women and three by men. Okay. I can't remember the exact way he phrased it, but that was the impression I got from it. Right. But yeah, it's they when the, they're releasing information differently this year. So mm. we can't look at the past. Well, we talked about this sort of thing last week. We can't look at the past for precedence about how we're going to get our information, no, can we? No, I know. I'm just wondering if, because... The release of information in a different way is often telling us something about the new state of the series. So I'm wondering what's this telling us about the new state of the series and whether it's telling us something about the way the writers are being used in the mm. series as opposed to he's just secret about everything yeah, and think... he's decided to not release anything until... What well, did you listen or watch the SDCC panel? Not yet. Well, they gave away a few tiny tidbits on there about certain things. Mm. Very little, but they gave away more than they probably thought they would when they sat down. Right. Um, But we've just had SDCC. We've just had a teaser trailer and an actual trailer, Mm. which show a shot from the series. So the next press release of information is going to be, you know, with three months to fill, it's not going to be like four days afterwards, is it? Five days afterwards. So this is just something that escaped rather than something that was deliberately put out there, I think. Okay. So uh, it, it'll come, but I think you've got to expect things to come at a slower pace if they're going to fill up that three months. I'm somewhat, well, not surprised. Surprised is a bit strong, but considering we've had this whole thing about the uh, writer's room, I'm I'm surprised they kind of... It comes across that they're allocating a particular story to a particular writer, as opposed to... Well, this is how it works in American TV, too. In a writer's room situation, you'll have, I don't know, let's say for the sake of argument, five people, same number of people, and everybody works on all the episodes, 
and the lead writer's name is on roughly half the episodes. And then the way the rest of it is divvied up is everybody contributes to the plot line, somebody writes the script, and then everybody contributes to the second draft so or whatever. So you get teleplay by, yeah. which so, is distinct to story by. Okay. Yeah, so you get one of the writers in the writer's room will have his name primarily attached to it, and then the rest of them are listed as executive producers or however they go about doing it, contributors mm. in one way or another. But yeah, even in American TV in a writer's room, you'll still get the writer's individual names attached to bits and pieces. So for me, slightly, with the news... It's great news that they've they've got people of colour and women writers, female writers, but because they haven't released the names, the irony is now they've got them, but they're anonymous, which is a little bit strange. So they're almost it's almost sort of taken away a bit of their identity, and no, they're, they're they've revealed they've revealed the diverse nature of them before the actual names of them. Which yeah, is maybe that's the deliberate then. No, maybe not. Maybe. That maybe if by doing it this way around, you're allowed to concentrate on the fact that there are women and the fact that there are people of colour before you start concentrating on who those people are. But for me, that's the wrong way around. You should concentrate on them as individuals. The fact that they're people of colour and women should be... Yeah, but you'll that's get, great, but that's the second But you'll get a chance to concentrate on them as individuals when the names are released. Mm, okay. But when, But when Jodie Whittaker was announced to everybody. Yeah. The entire concentration in the aftermath of what followed was it's a woman yeah. and hardly anybody was talking about her body of sure, work. Sure, but we but we found out her name at the same time as we found yes, out Yes, and if a woman. we'd have found out no, earlier key, on that it was going to be a woman, yeah. people could have had the con- conversations about the fact that it was a woman and then when they announced who the woman was, the conversations would only have been about the body of work. I think it's actually very savvy marketing. And, a, and very savvy public face for Doctor Who, in as much as because we've got that whole we've we've got the the elephant in the room has been given a hat and, and everything. You know, it's that we're talking about the fact that we now have a female Doctor, so we're talking about that subject. Yeah. So while they are, they might as well say, "Would well, you know what? This is a completely clean sweep. This is what we're doing. Yeah. We're doing something that's not been done before. Mm. Should have happened before. Yeah, um, and- but." For whatever reason, didn't whether you know? I'm just worried about whether that should be used as marketing or whether that should just be. Well, I, that maybe that's done, my mistake. We've done this, and yeah, and, and, think, and this is this is when I say marketing, I don't necessarily mean this makes it more sellable. I think it, it's just a way of getting people talking about the program. Yeah, um, I don't mean yeah. to be any cynical I mean, in that respect. I just, I think it's great. I think it's the the move is great. I just. I've just got a slight issue with the way information is being released, and maybe they. That's weren't... because you just want to know everything. No, I don't. Actually, I don't. <laughs> I don't really care about about who the writers are. I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't look up what they've done. I'm not that kind of. I haven't got that kind of researchery instinct in this in this context in this sense. I'm more interested in. I don't know. I don't know. I'm more interested in the way the writer's room would work because that interests me about a series. But the actual identity of the writers doesn't interest me. But I'm just thinking that the diverse nature of the writers and the identity of the writers should, for me, come at the same time. No. Because, because that's, that's the whole point of, being, of having a diverse 
writers team. No, if they you have identities give, as if well. If you give the information all at the same time, the name as well as the colour, then you're putting the onus on that person to represent their colour. Mm. Whereas if you give mm. the colour first, then that conversation happens then. And if you give the person's identity afterwards, they're not representing their colour. They're an example of it. It's a different thing. Okay. Okay. Well, so at the moment, there's however many women and however many people of colour. But we don't know who they are. They're anonymous. No. I tell you what, it, it does do. We know it does, who they are, yeah. To an extent, it does. It, like JR says, it does nullify the whole thing. You know, when Jodie was announced, of course, you got the same old fools turning around saying, "Well, she only got the job because she's a woman." So, so you're you're nullifying that because you're getting that whole discussion out, getting that out of the way. Then when people are announced, do you think it's nullifying it? Don't you think that well, we'll if, have that discu- they'll have that discussion taking, now, I think and they'll have it again when they find no, out who the individual if they would no, really want to be. Well, that's if they'd have that's said what they tend to yeah. do. If they'd have <laughs> said a year before they announced Jodie Whittaker, the next Doctor Who's going to be a woman. We're looking for a woman. Yeah, because they had made that decision then. Then everybody could have got all the angst about the next doctor being a woman <laughs> out think, of the way. You think that would have worked? <laughs> no, there would. St- I think no. I but, think there would still be angst. No, but no, the but, discussion would have but, been which actor is it? Yes, yes as opposed yeah. to rather than they've only chosen you because you're a woman. The because you're a woman thing would have been out of the way, and they've chosen you because you're the best actor we could find who was right for the part, rather than because you're a woman. Yeah. I don't think it would have worked quite no, like no, that. I don't think it would. I don't think it, it would, would have, have changed the conversation. Mollified them. Well, the conversation hasn't changed now. So we see a trailer, and they're still going on about. Some the, people are. The, well, but, probably the same people that. Yes, I mean, but not all of them. A lot of people have accepted yeah. it now. The more time goes on, the more people are saying, "Right, I'm accepting this. Mm. Right, I'm prepared to give this a go. I'm prepared to give it a try." Mm-hmm. When the league clipped. The leak clipped. The clip <laughs> leaked <laughs> yes. with that 52 seconds from the first episode. Mm. The first thing I saw on all the Facebook groups, no, not on the Facebook groups, it was Gallifrey Base. There was a thread for it on Gallifrey Base. And uh, after, a, I don't know, about a day after it had leaked, I thought, I'll have a look and just see. And, you know, every third post was, oh, I was against the idea of a woman doctor, but I've seen this and now I see how it works. Mm. I'm going to give it a go. Yeah. That was like every third post on the thread. Yeah, This was a lot yeah. of people who were coming around to the idea. And the more time goes on, the more people will. When the series starts, people will. That's different from information. being. So the clip being released is example of the actual the actual work well, rather than information. Any, you can't so get I think, any more that, direct so I think, information I, than so that. So I think, I think that's when people will be mollified. Sometimes when you they can start... just pause to let me get a little bit in before carrying on, you know. When? What? Well, just then. Oh, gone. I just said it. <laughs> oh, so I, I think the the clip was an example of the work in action. So I think people would be mollified when the series starts and they start to see it working and they start to see the writing working. I think the information about the identity of Jodie Whittaker and the posters of Jodie Whittaker, I think that just reignites the debate. Again, that's not really mollifying things. But the clip, yes, that's that's part of the mollification because we're seeing her as the Doctor. Well, and, and so people just... By the same token, if they'd have said two years ago we're going to have a woman, you'd have had all the debate about whether it should be a woman or not. 
And when they say, and here's the woman it's going to be, mm. people would say, oh, she's a good actress. And that would have started to mollify some people. Yeah, maybe. Well, it would. I mean, if they weren't mollified by the... Well, yeah. If they had a problem with a female doctor, they're unlikely to be mollified by the identity of the actress, regardless I don't know. Regardless of who she is. I don't because know. they have a problem... Of, a fundamental problem with a female doctor. Not all of them. Some will be mollified. Yes, and that's but, what I'm saying. But some people are never going to be mollified. No. But okay. you mollify by degrees the ones who are willing to be. Yeah, yeah. The main know. the main mollification is going to be when the series starts. Absolutely. That's... But like I say, you release bits bit by bit, and there's a gradual coming around amongst the people who are you know willing to come around. Anyway, that's taken us miles away from where we were going to go, which is uh, people of colour or diversity just in the production of Doctor Who. And somebody made the point immediately after the news came out, there's been diversity in Doctor Who from the start. Mm. Ferriti Lambert was the producer. Warris Hussein, Indian director, was the first director, to which I made the point... Well, yeah, but there wasn't another woman producer after Verity Lambert, and there wasn't another director of colour after Warris Hussein. Mm. Which leads me to a slight theory, in that when Doctor Who was first created by Sidney Newman, the BBC didn't care for the idea. So they put people that, uh, and you can argue about this, but they were both novices, they put people who they didn't care about in the jobs. Or they allowed Sidney Newman to put people that the BBC as an organisation didn't care about in the jobs. So when Sidney Newman said, I want a woman producer, and when you know, it came up, here's an Indian director, they were both untried and untested. And the BBC just said, well, this series is going to fail anyway, who cares? It's when... <laughs> Matt's shaking his I'm head. I'm not, not entirely convinced that... well. What do you think if the BBC in 1963 had been looking at a massive investment in some big series that you'd have had Verity Lambert and Morris Hussain? I, Morris don't, I mean, I don't know a great deal about the BBC then, but I think decisions like that would have been... I mean, we know that Sidney Newman would have had kind of almost absolute control over that. So it would be up to, and we know that Sidney Newman still worked, working for worked, the with, BBC. worked with Verity Lambert, so it was an obvious choice for him. And then Warris Hussein, I don't know. Well, the quite point know I'm coming it, to is yeah. look what happens afterwards. Yeah. Doctor Who becomes a success, and every other producer is a man, and every other director is white. Mm. The diversity, there are a handful of women directors across the entire 26 years. Yeah. There are no women producers. There are six women writers, I think, across the entire 26 years. As soon as the series becomes a success, diversity goes out the window. What I'm saying is, diversity was there at the start because Doctor Who wasn't expected to be a big success for for the corporation. I think diversity was there at the start because Verity Lambert and Morris Hussain were there at the right time. It wasn't there after that because the BBC wasn't a diverse place. The BBC was an old boys club. Well, it was. And the majority yeah. of the producers were male. The majority of the directors were male. So the chances... Well, of... they were in 1963 as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I'm talking... Yeah. But Verity Lambert and Morris Hussain, Verity Lambert 
had worked with Sidney Newman, so came as a package with Sidney Newman. Well, not as a producer. No. Well, Sidney Newman gave her a chance to work up, so maybe that's maybe that is a Sidney Newman saw as kind of a. I mean, it was intended for children, so maybe he gave it as kind of a fresh face, rather than they were expecting it to fail. So they kind of sacrificed two, two unknowns on it. Well, no, I don't mean the entirety of the decision to put them in those positions was to sacrifice them to a programme that was doomed to fail. Yeah. What I'm saying is the BBC didn't have a lot of confidence in it. So, they, so the, the decisions that put men and white men in those roles for the following 24 years weren't things that were in consideration at the start. Okay. I mean, everybody who leaves the producer producer's role since then the next person has just been somebody white put into the job a white man put into the job you know without a second thought as to any 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 other option Mm. this is the but the point really that i'm coming to is that for the 26 years of the classic series you get very little diversity Mm -hmm. because not just because the bbc was institutionalized and white and male but because the result of that is that nobody thought to include diversity. Mm. So when you've got women directors, Julia Smith, the Smugglers? Paddy Russell. Paddy Russell, the Smugglers, was it? Well, no, Paddy, I'm thinking of other ones. Oh, but, sorry, yeah. yeah. But but these are people who are already tried and tested. Mm. So they're not being given those jobs for the purpose of diversity, they're being given to those jobs just because they're handy and free at the time. And it happens very little. Yeah. Because the point with diversity in television and on screen is that because I think the actual proportion of, let's say, black people in the British population is something like 5%. I think I looked this up. I looked it up a while ago because I wasn't expecting to do this tonight. Maybe I should have looked it up again. I think it's something like 5%. That's just black. But the number of black people who've played companions in Doctor Who in the last 13 years, 14 years, whatever it is since the series has come back, is obviously far greater than 5%. Because the point of representation is that you over-represent to strike a balance with the mm. under-representation that's previously taken place mm. so that you eventually reach a point where you normalise something. Mm. So you put more black faces in, onto your television screens in order to normalise the idea that there are black faces and white faces, etc., so on. And same with uh, gay people. And the same with women in leading roles. I... I don't know what the percentages are, but I think going by completely um, circumstantial, not, what's the word, not circumstantial, when you just, something that you notice. There have been a lot of programmes. Observational? Uh, observational, yeah. Observational circumstance. There have been a lot of programmes in the last few years where you've had women in the leading roles. Things like Happy Valley and things like Silent Witness and a lot of those detective-style programmes. Yeah. I don't know whether it's more than 50%. I suspect it's probably very much less than 50%. But a lot of them have been prime time, sort of um, quite quite um, visible programmes. And, and a lot of them are tied to the fact that 
female writers are starting to starting to emerge now. Yeah, so yeah. Happy Valley's a female writer. Um, the the detective drama on ITV with Amelia Bullmore and what's that called? Don't know. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can't. Yeah, that one. That one. Mm. Even things like Rosemary and Time, mm. right? Yeah. With Felicity Kendall and um, whoever was the other one in that. Yeah. Welcome, welcome to the CNR podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sixty minutes. We'll be trying to remember things. But the point is, <laughs> I keep saying the point is, I've got to stop doing that. I've been doing it for about the last five years. There's, you'll get you'll get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't. It's just going to keep happening. There's there's. Whether it's a deliberate push or not, but it's obviously the case that a lot of the time at the moment, when people are setting series up, they're setting them up with a female lead character, which is redressing a balance that we never had before. And if it is the (coughs) case, and I don't know whether it is, that at the moment there are perhaps more... probably go and do some research now and find this is a completely stupid idea and completely not the case but it seems to me that either you've got co-leads one of either gender mm. or if you've got a single lead in the last four or five years maybe it's, the chances are it's been a woman it's probable because we know that in the bbc they have they have guidelines for things like panel, yeah, yeah, sh- panel yeah. shows now where they have to have mm. one female member on one at least teams. yeah yeah um, which is, you suspect that's why Sandy Toxfig replaced Stephen Fry in QI. Yeah, yeah. Because the presence of Sandy Toxfig means that they've, they've met that without even starting. And maybe that extends to to drama as well. That dramas are more creative by its nature, more creative and requires... And the same female writers have to come through the... Well, and, and yeah, and this is where I was taking this. They're, in politics, for example, they had a... Um, I can't remember which party it was. I think it was the Tory party. And I think it was two elections ago. They insisted that a certain percentage of seats be fought by women candidates. Hmm. And, okay, the percentage wasn't 50%. But the, I, they insisted that there were at least a certain percentage of female candidates fighting seats for the party. Hmm. Which meant that, in some of those seats, women were getting the job that probably would otherwise have gone to men. And the reason those jobs would otherwise have gone to men is not because the women weren't capable, but just because, and this goes back to tradition and, um, you know, just the, the way people are used to certain things. People are just used to men in certain jobs, just used to white people in certain jobs, whatever, just used to straight people in certain jobs. And that was the case at the BBC in the 60s and 70s. Mm. And we're at a time now where a lot of the people of our age and older are still of a generation where they're used to that. Yeah. But I'm not saying, and this is a huge generalisation, so I'm not saying everybody our age and older is used to white men being in, you know, visible jobs. But we do remember a time when it was the case that that was the normal thing. And again, going back to what I said about you have to over-represent in order to strike a balance. Or even if you don't over-represent, you have to represent invisible places in order to put the faces in front of people Mm -hmm. to normalise equality. So there's always that forced 
period of time, isn't there? Where yeah. you're, you're forcing the issue. So it's like ball bearings bouncing back and forth, and it's going one way, it's going the next, and eventually they settle down, as you say, it normalises. And so Chris Chibnall was talking today about forcing the issue, or not forcing the issue, but he's, as part of the quotes in this um, report, he was saying things like, we actively went out and looked for people of colour, looked for women, looked for a diversity behind the cameras, as well as a diversity in front of the cameras. And to an outside gaze, that might look like forcing an issue. And to a certain degree, it's forcing an issue, because, like I say, you have to over-represent in order to normalise. But then, from an entirely different perspective, and this is the thing that a lot of people don't seem to... Well, a lot of people, a certain vocal minority don't seem to get their heads around. Sometimes, even if you're forcing the issue, you're only forcing an issue in order to nor- to standardise it. Mm. Because if you're putting, if you're, say, if it was the Tory party, I can't remember if it was Tories or Labour. I if think it was Labour. Maybe it was. I think it was. I don't know why I had it in my head it was the Tory party. If, if Labour... Cert- they've certainly... Yeah, if Labour are insisting on having twenty percent of female candidates in their seats or whatever the number is, that is still less than a number that would represent fifty yeah. percent of the population. So even by forcing an issue there, they haven't they haven't normalised it. They've just redressed the balance to a degree. <clears throat> and so, really, what I'm saying here is that by actively going out and seeking writers of colour, seeking women writers seeking women directors, having um, Mandat Gill, I guess, would be Asian, Tozin Cole, black, a woman doctor, and then a middle-aged white man. Mm. All you've done... It looks like you're forcing an issue. It looks like it's a PC agenda. It's not. It's just the agenda of reflecting the audience that's watching the programme. Yeah. Well, it is a PC agenda, but a PC agenda is a good thing. It's a good that's thing. Well, that's PC I mean, is a Star Trek crew. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. there. And, and yeah. PC is just an agenda of equalising. Yeah. 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 And so... Uh, and, well, people, you know, cynics will say that it's been done uh, sacrificing quality. You know, they, they, they're they going to say that because this decision's been made that way, they're not necessarily... But I think that's the right writer or something like that. But it's not the case. They're not going to give them a job unless they can do it. But I think I was going to come to that. But I think there's there's a kind of a creative argument behind diversity. Yeah, and this was going to be what I was going to come to. Yeah, yeah. Because you get new voices and you get different people from different backgrounds. Having even with actors, you Mm. get people with different life experiences, Mm. and and actually making the characters of a different color, it gives them it gives them a different. A different dimension sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. or maybe not. Mm. But but there's it yeah, allows yeah. for a certain amount of uh, newness. Yeah, in the, uh, I was going to say, I uh, immediately after I saw the news, I went on a Doctor Who group, and it was nine hundred members. I didn't get a chance, had enough time to go through all nine hundred members, but I just quickly scanned down the first maybe two hundred, and of those who had a picture of themselves in the profile picture, because obviously you can't tell if they don't. I would have said, judging by the way this Doctor Who group was made up and just of what I saw of it, so this is, again, entirely just circumstantial, observational, but it looked like it was about two-thirds men to about a third women, and it looked like people of colour in that group probably made up something like 
about 5%. So, and this is where people are going to say, you're going to sacrifice quality. Because if you look at it, there's no history of people of colour writing for Doctor Who. And if there's not a huge amount of representation within the fandom, then you might say there probably aren't a huge amount of people of colour who actually want to write for Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Because ordinarily, the yeah, people who most yeah. want to write for something would be people who are already inclined to like that thing, to yeah. want to take part. And now, two points to that. One is, okay, so by putting these people in these positions, hopefully that redresses the balance in groups like this, where you'll have a greater percentage of people of colour joining groups like this, watching the show. But the other thing is, like Matt says, if you put somebody in who's not necessarily a Doctor Who fan, mm. or not necessarily the big Doctor Who fan, you know, with an encyclopedic knowledge of the past, that I would guess most of the people who've written for it for the last 13 years have probably got, you put somebody in who may be inclined to like it, but doesn't have that encyclopedic knowledge, you've got people there, like Chris Chibnall, like his team of script editors, to make sure they don't do anything that's stupid or contradictory. But, like Matt says, you get a whole new creative dimension because they're writing Doctor Who in a way, maybe not by much, maybe only by degrees, Mm. they're writing Doctor Who in a way that it's not been written before. Absolutely, yeah. And shouldn't that be something we want to see? Yeah. I was listening to an interview with Kevin Scott the other day and he was saying about, you know, when he has to write for these different um, franchises, you know, they'll hand him a dirty great big show Bible. Mm. You know... And and why not? And why not? Because otherwise, you're not going to get you. You, you know, regardless of how much imagination you have, you, the danger is there. If you know a show inside out, that you're you just going to repeat it. You will. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there was there was another thing I read the other day which said about that any show after it's running for about three years tends to slot into a starts to parody itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the whole jumping the shark thing. Yeah, it? exactly. So it's another way of... And Doctor Who, you know, has always dealt with this by changing itself through casting somebody new as the lead actor. Mm. And the lead actor, if you change some, if you change the lead actor entirely and the regular cast, that's going to give people new things to think about you know, on the creative side as well as on the... But if you actually deliberately change the people behind the scenes as well, and, you know, it didn't need to be people of colour or women or whatever. It could just have been, well, here's five people who've never written for Doctor Who before. Let's see what they can do with it. Mm. But, I mean, you bring those other things in as well, and they've probably got, you know, maybe only by tiny degrees, new ways of looking at it too, Mm. hopefully. Mm. And that's what we'll hopefully see in series 10, and we talked about this a lot last week anyway, but hopefully we'll see a bit of a new way of looking at Doctor Who. And I talked last week, didn't I, about going back to the very beginning. And I've lost track of when these podcasts are out. Was last week last week? The last one we did was last week. Okay. What we did before that is next week. <laughs> okay, fine. Oh, my word. But, you know, I talked about the fact that I think they've thrown out everything but the initial idea and they're going to attack the initial idea. Mm. You know, not throwing out the history of the programme, but they're going to try and attack the initial idea with a fresh eye. And I think having people on the writing team who aren't inured in Doctor Who Mm. is a great way of doing that because Mm. it, it, 
it replicate you know all those writers on the first series of Doctor Who in 1963 were white men right mm. so the way to replicate that is by having a bunch of people on the writing team who are not white men mm. because then you're doing something new 55 late years later in the way they were some, doing something new 55 years ago and this is where we discovered that the writing team consists of Gary Russell, Stephen Moffat, <laughs> Russell T. Davis. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shall we move on then? Mm-hmm. Unless anybody's got anything more to add, but I... No. All right. No, no, I was going to say, again, listening to loads of interviews with writers and things, it was only today I was listening to an interview with Martina Coles, mm-hmm. the um, mystery writer, and, that, and she was saying about when she first broke through, she broke through with a, with a female character in the middle of a detective story, you know, had been unheard of to the point where people were saying, I can't, you know, publishers were saying, we can't sell this. Yeah, yeah. And it was our agent who stood by her and said, this is completely fresh, this is your voice, this is something different. Yeah. And now it's normalised. And that's what you need. Mm. And, you know, I think Doctor Who's actually way behind the curve on this, but thank God it's at least catching up now, to be honest. Okay, a few weeks ago, Simon said to me, because is this Simon's fault? Yeah, this is Simon's fault. <laughs> <clears throat> because people had been saying that they'd enjoyed the sidebar episodes we did a couple of years ago when we went off and talked about other things we liked. Okay. Yeah. And Simon said to me, "Can we do one on bands?" Oh, okay. Because Simon does like talking about music. That's his other big love. Yeah. Probably his big big love. Yeah. But. I said, not sure we can do that. So I'm going to say the reason now. Mm. Most of the sidebar stuff we did, we were talking about stuff that people who like Doctor Who would probably almost certainly also like. Mm. Star Wars, sci-fi yeah. films, horror films, etc. You do a 60 or 90 minute podcast about bands. And if you talk about, I don't know, say the three of us each picked two favourite bands, we could talk about six bands for an hour and a half. And the people listening to the podcast might end up saying, well, I didn't like a single one of those, and that conversation bored no. me rigid. Yeah, underrepresented. So, actually, I think there's quite a lot of, um, I don't know whether this is representative, but it seems to be on my social media, quite a lot of people who like Doctor Who seem to like heavy metal, prog rock, things like that. There's a lot of that on my... Uh, yeah, and equally electronic music, because there's a big crossover between heavy metal know, and I don't see much electronic music on my... Facebook at oh, all or Twitter. Well, I'm I'm in a fair amount of electronic groups and they're big Doctor Who fans. Oh, but there's go. the Radiophonic Workshop connection as well. Mm. Anyway, mm. so what I decided to do tonight was to let Simon get that out of his system. Oh, my God. What I'm going to do, I've got a stopwatch in front of me. I'm going to ask Simon and Matt, and I'm not going to do this myself because I get the opportunity to do this all the time. We did a whole hour and a half on Kubrick the other day. I'm going to ask Simon and Matt to each pick a band or musical artist, an author or series of books, a TV series or film director, one in each medium, visual, audio, prose. And I'm going to give them five minutes on the stopwatch and we'll have a conversation about that person, group, thing, whatever. Okay. So I'm not going to limit it to five minutes if we're having a conversation, but I am going to put the stopwatch on so that we kind so of... how are we linking this to Doctor Who, though? We're not. We're not. This is we, a sidebar. We... Right. This okay. is other things we like. This, this is, is a risky sidebar. This is yeah, we're, no. we're now so deep into Chris Chipton not giving us information about <laughs> Doctor Who and no new Doctor Who being on the television. 
that right. were basically just given up on Doctor Who. We've just done we've just done forty <laughs> minutes on Doctor Who. If we yeah, now do yeah, forty yeah. minutes on other things, yeah. I think that's fine. Yeah. But it lets you. I, I mean, I hope you think that's okay. I yeah. just thought it was a nice idea to do it so this way. Band, you can always talk about how he links to Doctor Who because I can usually link most things to it. Well, but we'll start with you yeah. and a band then, and that gets us underway, and then we'll go over to Matt and get an author or something. But we'll. We'll do it like that. Okay. And maybe I will join in, maybe Ooh. not. But I've got... I've got to think about who to talk to, but talk about first. But I don't want us to run on incredibly, stupidly long, so I'll probably stick out of it, but who knows if I feel like it. Maybe I'll join in with one of my own if we come to a bit of dead air or something. Mm. Anyway, I'm going to start the stopwatch. I'm not limiting you to five minutes. I'm just saying we should do about five minutes on each one of these things. Mm. Simon, the band you want to talk about... Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> it makes a noise! <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I've turned the sound off. <laughs> On the oh god! All right. Well, I'll go. If and I'm this won't to... be a monologue. It'll be a conversation. But five minutes on. Petra Boys. Yeah. See, I'm not sure why you didn't pick Blur because you're a big Blur fan as well, aren't you? I am. Um, yeah, I'm more of a Damon Albarn fan than I'm a Blur fan. But I've realised that it's kind of his influence, which is kind of you know filtered through because I've kind of followed on to a lot of his solo stuff and gorillas and things like that. So. Right, that's 30 seconds on the Pet Shop Boys where you've talked about Damon Albarn. Yeah, but there's a, yeah, there's a connection there because they were supposed to produce the original version of um, Girls and Boys but they didn't have they time, did the they remix, were busy doing something they? else which is why they remixed a limited edition 12 inch of it oh. but they were supposed to produce it. Okay, tell me about the Pet Shop Boys then. Where and when was your first Experience um, July 1985, I was watching Saturday Morning Children's program called Get Fresh, and they showed the original release of Opportunities, which was a massive flop. You were 42 at the time. <laughs> oh, the original release of Opportunities was prior to West End Girls. Yeah, yeah, they, they released West End Girls when they were on uh, Bobby Orlando's uh, label in 1984, which was a, a, a club hit in America and a lot of Europe. Didn't do anything over here. And then they left that label because they were, you know, the, the contract, they, they were doing nothing for them. So they ended up getting on Parlophone. And then in July 19, 1985, they released Opportunities for the first time. And uh, yeah, I saw the video on there. I was completely fascinated by it, but had no idea who they were or anything like that. Because it was no, it was just like a kid's middle of the middle of the Saturday morning. They suddenly showed this video and it came up at the bottom and I remember the name Opportunities. I didn't know. I didn't remember the name Petra Boys at all. And of course, it was later in that year. West End Girls came out. Did you realise it was the same band? Uh, something twigged because when their album came out, I said, "Is that song Opportunities on there?" And there it was. Um, so I bought the album. That's when I got to hear it. So was, you probably realised seeing them, you recognised them. And yeah, they yeah, yeah. Put it together. That yeah, well, way. the imagery was so strong. So uh, that's and that's kind of what. But it was weirdly, my sister bought West End Girls and played it to death. And then it wasn't until the, the next single, Love Guns Quickly, came out. I bought a 12 inch of it, and then that's when I kind of became a fan. Massive fan. When did they release the discography? That was. That would have been 90. What was that? DJ Culture was the last. So was that 93? Well, that was after four hours. That's, that's, that's the first CD I ever owned. Oh, really? Yeah, I got wow. it as a present. Was yeah. the Pet Shop Boys discography? It was. It was definitely just after the Gulf War because DJ yes. Culture was one of the extra tracks, and that was about that covered Gulf War. first four studio albums. Is that right? Or was it yeah, just three? It was four. Wasn't four. It? Yeah. yeah, that would have covered Please Actually Behaviour, Introspective. Yeah, that yeah, would have been four. four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Mm. See, I do know a tiny little bit. Yeah. <laughs> what? You know, five minutes. So mm. what is the big thing about the Pet Shop Boys then that appeals to you? Oh, at the time, and it, it kind of not doesn't carry on quite so much with the... I don't think there's many bands who kind of know themselves quite so well. And whereas some people might say there's a limit to what they're they're capable of doing, I just think when you're listening to Petrol Boys, you, there's there's only certain bands like it, bands like the Beatles and and New Order and and people like that, where you're kind of in their world. So when they work with other people, they come into that world. So there's there's a kind of obviously bands have their own sound, but the girls and boys did, even though it didn't wasn't produced by them. Mm. There was obviously a synergy there already. Yeah, yeah, in that song. Um, so I, I, I just felt like they just had an identity to them, but there was also the fact that they kind of, uh, we I was kind of getting into punk as well. I was listening to a lot of the clash and I being the age I was, and I was kind of reacting to everything when I was, when I was at school, I was dressing up and drawing all over my coat and trying to look as different from everyone else as possible, because that was my way of dealing with being excluded from things and feeling isolated so i took control of it by excluding myself and what what i appreciated about them is much like the punk was that was reacting against everything they reacted against everything all the way through they would look at what was going on in music so when you think about 1993 um that was the time of nirvana and all the uh you know all the american rock stuff was coming through and everything was very authentic a bit like how it is now and there was a lot of guitar bands and everything was very raw. So what did they do? They became completely synthesized where they had all the pointy hats and looked completely odd, looked like something out of Devo or something oh, yeah, like that. Yeah. So there was it was and then later on everything started dance music started taking off again. Uh so they released uh, an album called Release, which was mainly acoustic. They started using guitars. All right. So they they're always kind of reinventing themselves and some might say that they're kind of um you know, going against what they said before, because there was always this assumption that they would never use guitars. So I don't think contra- they ever said that. Sort of contrarian, contrarian. Yeah, they go against themselves and what's happening in the world around them, Absolutely. which is why they're so distinctive. Yeah, well, like when, and why uh, like Bowie keeps yeah. keeps evolving. When Erasure released a little respect, I remember a lot of their fans were mightily pissed off because it had guitars on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like you know, <laughs> but but being in in. In some respects, that's them reacting against the the fact that you know if you liked electronic music, all the guitar fans would say it's not real music. So how do you react to that? Well, you say, well, then I'm going to ban guitars from my music instead. So it, I, I just find it all very interesting. And um, design wise, I was I went to college to study graphic design, so visually, all their record covers are still incredibly strong and, and distinctive. Um, you know, so I. They just did everything right for me. Ticked a load of bosses. I, I, I've not loved everything they've done. There's been peaks and troughs. I, I do get fed up with people who say that you know, all the, it's only the old albums that are any good when they've been producing. Well, that's my st- belief. Is it? Well, they've been producing. <laughs> well, no, because I only know the old albums. Yeah, well, there are peaks and troughs, but certainly the last two albums have been very strong. Um, and... I really like the first two albums. I kind of lost interest after that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's been really amazing albums, and you know, in amongst those particular tracks, have been really great all the way through. So you know, I still think they're uh, considering their ages. I, I imagine they're in their sixties now. Neil Tennant certainly is, but 
Is he? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you one more question, then we'll move on to Matt. I want you to name your favourite either song or album or tour or moment or something they did. I want you to pick one thing that from the lifespan of the Pet Shop Boys that sticks out in your head. It doesn't have to be a favourite. Just something that's happened or that they've done that you still have, that you still think about. I still love the fact that they, going back to the punk thing and the fact that, people, you know, cynics of the Petrol Boys will say, oh, they're very safe and very manufactured, is the fact that they produced that cover of a U2 record for the Streets of No Name. I was at college, people loathed it, and mm. I was clapping my hands at the fact that they pricked the balloon of pomposity of U2, you know, and the fact that they got this big thing, you know, the Joshua Tree, and it was all very big, and all those moody photos by Anton Corbin and that sort of thing. And they said... Actually, it sounds a bit like uh, the old Andy Andy Williams track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they put the two together to kind of just make it a big thumping disco hit. Yeah, yeah. And what did you two do, do next? Acting, baby. Yeah. They realised, oh, hang on, we're a pop group now. Oh, well done, you know. So at that age, as I say, I was reacting to a lot of things, in particular you 2 and Simple Minds and stuff like that, which now I love, but... I still love the fact that they did that, and I, I wish more bands did that now. I, I feel it's all very safe, but that might be my age. I don't know. Wow, I don't know how to. Oh damn it! I don't know how to reset this. Uh, uh, no, it doesn't appear to want me to reset near, the near fifty-year-old man <laughs> oh, trying to use technology. <laughs> oh, shut up and choose an author or author. a series of books or something to do with prose fiction. Um, to talk about. I'm, so the one author I'm always trying to flog to people because I really like him um, and because it's, it's sort of, I think it would appeal to Doctor Who fans. There's a guy called Phil Rickman who wrote, he started out as a horror writer, so he's still writing, he's from Wales. He started out as a horror writer along the lines of a kind of a sub Stephen King mm. um, but set his books in the English countryside or in the borderlands of Wales or in Derbyshire. Um, yeah, I've been to Derbyshire. And, yeah, yeah. There are, there's <laughs> potential for horror. Um, but then he started a series of books um, based around Hereford, in and around Hereford and in the landscape around that, um, called the Mary Lee Watkins Mysteries. Um, Mary Lee Watkins is the diocesan exorcist. So she's a modern, yeah. a modern female vicar who's, who's appointed the exorcist for the Hereford Diocese, which means that she, she goes around as a kind of a counsellor and a kind of a, a sort of a psychotherapist, but also in these books. It's sort of crime fiction, so so crimes happen, but they've always got a kind of a supernatural edge and you're not sure whether it's supernatural or not, so it's never quite revealed. So things happen, there's evil there, mm. but you're not quite sure if there's anything more to it than that. So it's always on the edge of, of kind of horror, the edge of supernatural. So he sort of plays with crime fiction, he plays with horror fiction. Um, and each book he's written about, must be, it must be onto his tenth. And each book takes a different area near Hereford or in that sort of borderland between Wales and England. And he starts with a kind of a myth from that area or a piece of folklore 
or there's there's one to do with the Hound of the Baskervilles, there's one to do with Fred West from up there, there's one to do with Hay on Wye and ghosts in Hay on Wye. And he uses that myth or that piece of folklore as a springboard for a work of crime fiction that involves that involves the church. And he's not a religious writer, I think. I think by his nature, I think he's an agnostic writer, but he's very sympathetic towards the Christian church. Or having said that, spoiler alert, the second book, the Bishop of Hereford turns out to be a Satanist. <laughs> um, so, so he's also critical. He's critical of hypocrisy in the church. Um, but Merrily Watkins is, is an heroic character. She's a really strong female lead character. Um, she has flaws. She's, she lost her husband in a car accident, so she's bringing up her teenage daughter. And her teenage daughter is intertwined with all of these mysteries because her teenage daughter is discovering discovering kind of paganism and then discovering bits and pieces and weird things happen to her. So there's a kind of a soap opera element to that. It's kind of been described as, as the archers meets Cracker. So it's what happens if the darkness of Cracker suddenly descended upon Ambridge. Um, so it's but, taking, essentially, it's taking lots of fairly standard things, but mixing them in yeah, a way that's not been done. Yeah, and and he's a really good writer. He's really evocative. Um so you know how some writers um, use the weather to... It's called pathetic fallacy. They use the weather to really kind of enrich and drive the story. Yeah. And he does it. So his his stories are very seasonal. So um, one story is set in a really blistering heat wave. Another is set in just before a great storm and a flood and, and there's there's snowstorms. And each time it kind of dovetails with the type of story. So he's a really evocative writer. And he's really good at characters as well. So there's a lot of humour in there. There's a lot of sort of local eccentric characters in it. And he's he knows how to bring out the eccentricities because he's based in that area. He knows these these people in real life. Um, but because the characters are really real, what's happening behind the curtains, this kind of darkness, this kind of supernatural behind the curtains, it's all the more frightening. It's not folk horror yeah. like The Wicker Man. It's real contemporary. It is like the arches. It's real contemporary folk horror. Um, is there an ambiguity to the supernatural? I mean, is it is it kind huge, of yeah, hugely? Yeah. I mean, I mean, which gen- makes it more fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You're never quite sure. I mean, he he goes right to the edge to the point where it probably it has to be. So people have visions, and uh, one book is one book has at its centre this this idea that Elgar haunts. I think the Malvern Hills on his bike. So there's the ghost of Elgar cycling along Malvern <laughs> Hills. And it talks about the de- Elgar's g- dream of Gerontius. And the the idea of the theory is, or the idea, and I don't know how real this is, is the dream of Gerontius, which is this kind of sweeping piece of music. It actually follows the Malvern Hills. So Elgar cycling over the hills. He goes up and down these hills. And you can see the music going up and down as Elgar cycling over these hills. And so it's tied to the dream of Gerontius, Elgar's ghost, and some darkness. Um, and the uh, the Fred West one, because Fred West, before he went to Gloucester, you know, was further up the uh, the border. So it's talking about a house that he used to own and somebody who's obsessed with him. But it's also tied with electricity pylons around mm. the house mm. and this idea that electricity pylons are somehow sort of, mm. you know, driving people insane. So it's, but it's, it's always, it's kind of non judgmental. And it is, it is, 
on the whole, it presents Christianity and the idea of the supernatural sympathetically, but sceptically, I think, mm. which kind of appeals to me. Um, yeah. It's okay. Say his name again and pick, uh, his, pick your favourite of his books. So Phil Rickman is name, and I'm trying desperately to remember the names of the individual books. Um, well, prob- say prob- the Fred West one. Prob- then, well, no, the, probably the best one is, is it's called... Um, uh, uh, the Wine of Angels, which is the first Merrily Watkins mystery. Right, yeah. So if you hunt out that, um, and that's to do with apple orchards, apple orchard myths, um, and and there's a murder in it. So <laughs> what's not to like? Sounds good. Simon, I'm back to you. Oh God, you're not doing one then? No, I'm not. I said I wasn't going to do one. I said you guys were. Uh doing these things yourself and I'd only throw in if we dry up I'm going to ask you about a movie series or director no, or dry up but if you dry up I'll do one of my own right okay but I didn't want to do this because I get plenty of opportunities as it is mm-hmm. so this is going to be on YouTube that's the idea yeah okay have you got a series of movies or a director or something you want to talk about um oh, let me think let me think let me think um I mean it could be something as simple as just the Indiana Jones films or something yeah. know, or TV maybe a TV programme I just wanted to get something prose, something music, something visual. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm. What have I done? I literally watched a good half of Coco again today because I'm becoming more and more fascinated by the whole Pixar thing and the whole the the whole thing about stories. I'm doing a lot off the back of that. I'm I'm just reading an awful lot about the structure of stories and actually how story not only. Uh, you know, is obviously internal to movies and to and to TV and to books and all those sort of things, but also how integral it is it is to our lives. And reading a fascinating book, which I'm sure people will know about, um, by John York, which is called Into the Woods, which looks under the hood. John York is a writer who, uh, back in the day, wrote a lot of the really famous EastEnders storylines, like um, when Tiffany was involved and things like that. Okay, um, but he's He's gone back, and he's. Uh, I I read the um, Joseph Campbell book, the Hero of the Thousand Faces. Mm. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Matt's making a face, and I've I've done that where I've looked at it because I looked at that because I used to look at Star Wars, and I wanted to know why it affected me like like it did. What did I? Why did I become so obsessive about it? What was it about it that kind of captured my imagination and kind of th- threw a load of romance into my life? Um, and so I, I read the Joseph Campbell book and didn't see it as law, but I could kind of see why George Lucas read it and suddenly thought, oh, this is how I'm going to do my Star Wars story. This is the shape it's going to have. The John York book looks at that, but it also looks at a book that was written afterwards. And I've only just read this, so I can't remember the name of the author. There was a guy who took the Joseph Campbell book and streamlined it into Star Wars. No, no, uh, he wrote another book, and I can't oh, right, think of what okay. it's called, and it basically became the Bible for Hollywood for a good few years, right up through, uh, possibly up to kind of the, the early 70s, so that it was very difficult for any kind of independent filmmakers to put anything through and get backing, which is why you had a load of low-budget stuff coming through. Um, I don't know if it touches on the kind of the Scorsese movies or things like that, where I think they were quite independently made, weren't they? They didn't have a load of money thrown at them. Well, they were indies at the start, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and the Kubricks and people like that, so they were never mainstream because they were still going by this Bible, which was this idea of the three-act 
yeah. the three-act story. Um, and this John York book goes into the idea of whether five and seven act uh, is a far more accurate thing. But what I find fascinating is it's not saying, oh, this is how all stories are. It's saying what are what are the connecting things and what what are the strong stories and and the reason being is because of the way our brains are wired as humans is that in yes. our lives we we progress through life in the way that we we grow up and we have to change and, and there are changes and then we we each have kind of like a goal that we're heading towards and it's it's not the hero's journey the three act hero's journey that Joseph Campbell said because you know it's just oversimplified. Mm. But but this book is fascinating in as much as um, it talks about things like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that's a seven act. And you think, wow, they, you know, it's quite. I, I'm just finding it all fascinating. But equally, it it the book uh, it talks about James Cameron movies. It talks about aliens, and it talks about The Godfather, and it talks about um, you know really great movie reference points to look at and to see the similarity between things. You know, Back to the Future. Um, and also TV shows, but it also relates to the Pixar things. And um, all of the writers I'm hearing, a load of them, just come back to Pixar every time. This whole idea that they they have this, they've nailed the story angle. I quite like. So I don't. I have problems with Joseph Campbell, but not not as a kind of a, an inspiration to write mm. or as a guide to write. I think the act structure is great for writers to be able to obviously break down their story mm. so that they're writing it in movements much like music is written yeah my problem is using it to take stories apart once they've been written yeah because yeah Raiders of Lost Ark can have seven acts but you can also you could potentially break it down into three yeah. or two yeah. so there's a sort of an arbitrary nature to that mm. but mm. as a as a kind of a model but, for writing it's really it's really interesting to read these kind yeah, of things yeah I'm, I'm, I feel like it's a rabbit hole I've disappeared down I absolutely, I'm absolutely loving it mm. and it's affecting my writing as well and it's really building up my have you seen um, Mark Kermode's documentary on cinema yeah no not it's yet. been on BBC4 and one of the things he's doing, so he's looking at different genres, and one of the things he's doing is he's looking at the structure of the genres in a kind of an act sense. So he's got this sort of infographic each week mm. where it takes a sort of a the like the most the most traditional genre movie, so the most traditional heist movie he can find, which I think was Rafifi or something like that, mm. or Oceans Oceans Twelve or Oceans Eleven, and he he they depict it in graphics as a kind of a block and they divide it into acts and then they demonstrate, you know, the first act is the, the getting the gang together in a heist mm, movie. Mm. The second act is the plotting and the carrying out of the heist. The third act is what happens the after the heist yeah. and the mm. fallout of it. Mm. And that's really, that's a good way of using. What, what I love about it is it doesn't remove any of the magic. No, no, no. Um, it just it gives you some clarity, and what's interesting is the fact that writers who are aren't aware of these things still write in that way. Hmm. You know, uh, somebody uses the example of a nine-year-old who wrote a story in a, a school, and it was a really solid story, but they knew nothing of this stuff. But they had structured it in exactly that way, hmm. um, and almost in the same way as music, where we have this attraction to the eight beats to the yeah um, yeah eight beats to the bar that that kind of. I never think it takes away magic anyway. Knowing no. how, knowing how something, because like you I are with it, music, you know how 
you know how the pet shop boys reach compose. A point, and... I did reach a point of music at one point where I was literally analysing everything I was listening to mm. and breaking it down and then listening to it track by track. Mm. I think that comes from listening to Depeche Mode too much because everything works in layers. So you do start listening to just the drum track and then you, you get to the point where you, you stop enjoying it. Mm. But um, but no, I, I'm enjoying movies and TV even more now. Cool. From understanding what's going under the hood. So it's, yeah, really great. Well, that was uh, Simon talking about books for five minutes after it asked you about movies. <laughs> <laughs> that could be your books one. I'm coming back to you for movies in a minute. Oh, okay. Well, no, whatever. It doesn't matter. Matt, though, I'm going to come okay. to you and ask you a music one. A music one? Yeah. Oh, great. Um, well, you don't have to. You I can say move along or I'll do something. No, no, instead, I think that... But... So I was thinking they might be giants. So the first the first CD I got was the Pet Shop Boys and it was bought for me. Uh, the first tape I got was ABBA's Greatest Hits because my dad got it out of the library. But the first piece of music that I actually bought for myself was um, was They Might Be Giants and it was Birdhouse in Your Soul as a single. Yeah. Back in 1980... Whatever it Nine, was. something like that. Yeah. And it was it was unlike... So it's the sort of thing where... And it, I bought it on a single, which was an actual record single, mm. which is possibly the last time I'd never seen any since before. <laughs> um, and I must have worn it, worn it out just listening to it again and again. And it's a weird... They're, so they're, it's a band from New York. It's kind of very indie... They start out quite electronic, so they don't. But initially, it's two piece. Initially, two piece with a drum with a a, a drum synthesizer, um, and one of them plays sometimes plays an accordion, and the other plays a guitar. They both sing, but they've got a really sort of quirky sense of the the lyrics are very quirky. Um, the style is very kind of eclectic. They bounce around all over the place. They do something a little bit like what the Pet Shop do, Boys do, in that there's a kind of cynical irony in a lot of their observation yeah there's lots of irony in it um but it's sort of kind of timeless irony as well so yeah so like a bit like the pet shop boys they don't pander to the times they don't follow they don't follow styles or fashions so uh one of their tracks was recorded on the edison an edison wax cylinder yeah um so that they, they really sort of one of their tracks is just uh, five-second fragments of music or ten-second fragments of music on, combined, um, to, combined together on Apollo 18. Hmm. Apollo 13? Apollo, Apollo 18. 18. Um, and it was designed, it was designed, I think, to piss people off listening to it on random on CD. Oh, because they do, yeah. Because it was designed to be, each individual bit was designed to be sort of like just suddenly appear randomly. But but it didn't. Yeah, on the British release, it was just one track yes. instead of yeah. thirty-three, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, something, something like that. that. Fingertips, it's called. Yeah, um, that's it. So they do strange things. Then they moved into children's music um, for quite a long time, um, and I kind of dropped out, dropped out of them for a bit. Um, but now they've released a new album, um, and I'm slowly getting slightly hooked on it to the point where I'm listening to it. Are they still a full band? Uh, I think that I kind of went off the ball with them when they started being a normal band. <laughs> well, I think John Henry. 
Yeah. John, uh, John like... Henry was the first one I think they did as a full band. Okay. And I think the last one I bought was the one after John Henry. Um, y- yeah. Um, I think I bought a couple after that and yeah. then stopped. Um, I didn't mind that too much um, because I think they still... Yeah. I think it was the lyrics, so I'm a big lyrics person. Mm. Um, and with them, part of the pleasure is you can't understand the, what the hell they're saying. And when Birdhouse and Your Soul was released, it was before the internet, so you couldn't look up the lyrics. Mm. So you end up kind of, you know, slowly driving driving yourself it's mad. Nightlight, isn't that? It? Yeah, it's yeah. about a kid with a bird-shaped nightlight in his room, and it just goes off goes off from there. Yeah. It's not actually my favourite song. I don't think anymore. They, no. they have songs. I think my favourite song is still a song called Anna Eng. Yeah, mine too. Um, which just, it takes events from 1960s America. They found the name of the phone book, didn't they? I, think I just have no idea. I have no idea. But it's just, it's got a really good beat. Oh, and, and the line. And the lyrics are really rich. Hear oh, my um, words, they're the ones you would think I would say if there was a me for you. It's just like, get your head around what that means. Yeah. Somewhere yeah. I've got a D90 cassette with an interview with them, with Johnny Walker on right. Radio... I suppose it would have been Radio 1 then. Okay. Yeah, on a Saturday afternoon, I've got a recording of the, an interview with them from mm. from that time. So yes. I'll look it up. And, I really mm. like John Henry, you know. The John Henry's band, good. Yeah. yeah, the whole mm. the, the the idea that this is a thing. Manson, who obviously Paul Draper's been on a couple of times, the Manson fans don't like Little Kicks because and man and he doesn't like Little Kicks all that much himself because the record company forced him to do like a pop record. Mm. But doing a pop record took Manson out of their comfort zone and I really liked the way that made them adapt and I really liked how then they approached doing things that you wouldn't normally hear them doing. So actually, bizarrely, I think Lil Kicks might be my favourite Manson record just because it's the Manson record that isn't a Manson record. That's what you say, isn't it? Some people, people who don't necessarily do music will say that pop music, oh, pop music's easy. It, it, no. It really isn't. And this is what I like about John Henry is they might be giants, not being they might be giants. Mm. They're out of their comfort mm. zone. As and were. I don't like pop music that is easy. So the music that I very rarely, with they might be giants, I think Birdhouse in Your Soul is the only song I got into instantly yes. and wanted to listen to again. Yeah. Every other song, I thought, what the hell are they doing? Mm. They've just gone mad. But there's something about it that makes me listen to it again. Mm. And by the third listen, then I'm slowly getting obsessed. And it's the songs where I get it like that yeah. are the ones that I really, I can listen to again and again and then I have to just stop and I don't go back to. Yeah. But it's the ones that kind of get under your skin. So the, the best albums are the ones where at first you're kind of unsure about them but every now and again there's a little bit that you kind of go back to and then slowly and they're yeah. usually the strongest albums. And there's, a life, there's a life in you listening to an album where you really get into the first song or the second song mm. and you think that's great and these ones are all right. And then gradually... Mm. The, the kind of the fondness shifts through mm. the album until you've like until the whole album is just yeah it's just under your skin it's yeah, great yeah. I, I, it's reminded me I, I don't know if this is my memory playing a trick on me but I seem to remember once when I was at home on my own dialing the they might be giants dialer song yeah oh yeah 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 but I listened to it very quickly so it, yeah. Just hope my mum and dad wouldn't pick up on an American call on the, <laughs> on the phone bill. So I listened to it for less than a minute. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I can't yeah. remember what the song was. <laughs> I was I was too young for that. I think. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I would have been dialing that on a rotary dialer as well. <laughs> it's back in a green phone. Well, I've only got one thing to say before we move on. Hideaway, folk family. Right, okay. Simon, you're up next. Oh, God. Right. Well, all right, name a TV programme. <laughs> or else someone's going to get you. Um, someone's going to get you. TV programme, probably spaced. Mm. I still adore spaced. Did you see it when it was first on? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I don't, it's not often that a TV programme speaks to you like that. Uh, but but it was just such a creative tour de force and so funny and so emotive and suddenly made you feel relevant. I think that's the word because it, they, they the characters were of, of a similar age to me, and um, I remember being in a relationship with a girl. And we both we both got into it in a big way. It was it was the program we both sat down to watch together, and you would talk about it for the whole week afterwards. Quite doing that annoying thing that people do where you quote the lines almost like you're as funny as they are. But we did used to recite recite a lot of the, the, the names. But even now I keep thinking about going back to it. I think talking about it remembering is probably better than watching the actual thing. Metallicock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see we're laughing now, but we're laughing at the memory of it. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to yeah. um but you think about all the careers that were started, you know, Simon Pegg and... Um, Edgar Wright. Edgar, well, yeah, obviously Edgar yeah. Wright. Um, Bill... Uh, Bailey. Bill Bailey, yeah. Bilbo. Yeah. Jessica Stevenson. Jessica Hines. Yeah. Have, have you seen Baby Driver? No, not yet, no. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so I've got really behind on Edgar Wright. But... Ba- yeah. yeah, Baby Driver is unbelievably good. Um, and it kind of, I still want to write comedy. What was I, it about Spaced? Mm. What was it about Spaced as opposed to whatever else comedies were on? Because Spaced is very particular. It is. Um, and is it? And Spaced is very particular about a certain kind of person. Mm. And it's not I mean, it necessarily was... reflecting that person in a very sort of um, Do you know positive what it was, way. It was that... It was that period of time where you, you, the characters and me at the time, with that sudden realization, because I guess I was in my 20s, I suppose I would have been, that sudden realization that you're no longer the young generation, that now you are, there are people coming through who are, are now the person you think you are. And even now, I still think of myself, but I know we all do. 17. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And you no longer feel relevant. And, um, but there was something heroic behind Bisley. Yeah. So, so it's not, it wasn't just... Oh, that's it being a struggling character. artist. I mean, that was me. Yeah. And you also got the impression that it wasn't just, that's not just his nature, that's also Edgar Wright. You could see Edgar Wright because Edgar Wright, the look of it and the style and the editing was so mm. was so integral to it. Mm. And you could tell that, that it all, it, this kind of personality went all the way through to behind the scenes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And so it's kind of the story, not just of Tim Bisley. Tim I think Bisley. the other thing is that a lot of comedy had passed me by. Um, Mary Whitehouse experience. Mm. I never got that at all. And I never bought into that. So I had friends who were reciting lines at me and things like that. And um, But this kind of... I don't know. It's just, 
there were characters who you want to go down the pub and get pissed with. You know, mm. so there's there's and one episode in particular which I just still think is an incredible piece of television is the one where they go to the club. Mm. It's the one where they go to the nightclub, and they somehow he managed to film that, which I don't think there are multi-million dollar films who don't manage to convince you that it's you're in a, you're in mm. a nightclub because people aren't dancing in time with the music and things like that. But they get mm. the whole thing, and and it was it was an era of my life as well where we were going out clubbing and, uh, and dancing and, and it was just really great just really great um, it was a TV program about you it for was you yes absolutely and almost with you in it wow yeah in a lot of ways and oh you know do you still I, go back and watch them now I go back and watch bits of it or I quote it even now I quote bits of it and I know it still seems relevant they talk about doing a third series but i don't think they ever will um, they're all too far off on other things i, sh- I think they still talk now. about it though you know it's, it's always still bubbling away that they that they'd like to do it but have uh, to each of them give over like six months to doing it all mm, at the same time all be mm, available at the same time but it's lost its innocence now so they, they, yeah. they wouldn't be the same you know some um, I mean, the league of gentlemen came back and did one years later yeah you know last year mm. and that you can kind of just get away with that because that's not about the characters, or rather, the characters that it's about at a certain the, point in there time. Would be, there can be a bit soul destroying seeing Bisley and Co. Yeah. in the age of fifty or whatever. Mm. And the League 50s. of Gentlemen did it because because they, they get hadn't away. they hadn't descended to quite the level of Edgar Wright. And Simon exactly. Pegg. I mean, yeah, Simon yeah. Pegg's making movies with Tom Cruise. But they also... Whereas Mark Gatiss is yeah. still at that that level. And they put prosthetics on, and they've not really yeah. aged a lot. And part of what it was was about the fact that they've aged, but only a bit. Mm. Mm. Whereas, obviously, if you were to do Spaced again, it would be Spaced in your 50s. Yeah, but my, still my favourite line in um, Spaced is, Babylon 5 is a big pile of shit. I thought that was just brilliant. <laughs> as soon as you put the DVD on second season That's, yeah yeah, yeah. I remember that yeah alright finally then we get Matt since he's just done TV you'll have to do a film series or a director or I was screenwriter oh no we can not have TV twice in a row okay. go on then do TV well, I was going to do, do The West Wing okay um, so I've been watching I've been re-watching The West Wing probably about the seventh time um, from beginning to end um, so it's Aaron Sorkin and the West Wing is my yeah. choice. Um, I didn't see it. I saw bits of it when it was originally on in the UK. And I don't know when it was on in the UK. I've, it was uh, on... It's been at university. I mean, when in the week. Oh, it see. seemed to be quite late at night when I saw it. And I think I first, I first caught an episode in the middle of season one. And it's really, it's a really dense series. It's really kind of complex but you just get hooked to the characters. And once you've been hooked to the characters, you just carry on with it. And and eventually then I started binging on the box sets. So instead of watching yeah, yeah. on the television, I'd just buy the box sets when they came along um, and got to the stage where I knew it well enough that... So when I did... When I did... A degree, my first, my last degree, the last degree I was allowed to do before I've stopped being allowed to do degrees. Um, I came up with an idea for for a big piece of writing, which was based around uh, mythology in America. 
and I wanted to write about Tim Burton. I wanted to write about David Lynch. So one chapter was Tim Burton, one chapter was David Lynch, one chapter was maybe Hollywood, and I couldn't think of a fourth. There had to be a fourth chapter. I couldn't think of one. So just before my first supervision session, I kind of wrote on the back of an envelope, West Wing, West Wing, Washington, the myth of Washington. And during my first supervision session, he said, well, this is very good, but it's a bit broad. Why don't you cut these three chapters and just write the whole thing on this fourth chapter? So I found myself not knowing anything about American politics, just knowing that I liked the West Wing, having to write a 100,000 word thesis on it. And from that point, the West Wing from that period of my life is the only thing that survived being a non-work thing. So I wrote I wrote for years about the West Wing and I can still watch it for pleasure. And I think that's a testament to the power of the writing and the direction and also the performances. There's so many actors in the West Wing that are now, like Alison Janney's now winning Oscars. Um, uh, Whitford is now in sort of independent horror movies that are winning Oscars. Uh, the thing about West Wing is it idealises the ideals, but at the same time, it shows just how difficult it is to make those ideals a reality. So yeah. there's a constant dichotomy going on between the things people want to do and the things people can get away with doing mm. and the sacrifices they have to make to get there. Yeah. I think actually you can watch the West Wing and although the names are different of the organisations and the houses and stuff. You actually learn a lot about how British politics works, looking at American politics, because essentially you have to make a lot of the same sacrifices in order to achieve the same, you know, successes. Yeah, and I'm watching it now. So, so yes, that's that's true. Um, but in the same way, watching um, something called yeah, uh, something like Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister, if you watch, you can still watch that as a sort of a, a ground text <laughs> for understanding politics now. Yeah. And also you can watch that as a text for understanding West Wing because the West Wing draws on Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister. Um, but the West Wing is still relevant now in, in America. Mm. All of it, like every other episode of the West Wing is saying something about what Trump is doing. Not Not always critically. So there are some things that... that Part that the fictional president does that Donald Trump does, but yeah, the difference yeah. is, part that the fictional president is presented as a Nobel Prize winning <laughs> economic academic with a labyrinthine mind, and Trump isn't quite. Trump thinks he is, <laughs> um, but isn't. So yeah, so it can teach us. I mean, I learned a lot about American politics from watching The West Wing. I had to read. I actually had to read about it as well, but. Um, but yeah, a lot about how the American elections work, the the American system works, but also about about the American psychology, the American political psychology, about how how it's kind of how it's so divided in America, and how idealistic it can be on both sides of the aisle. And the West Wing doesn't just a large part of, part of it is Democrat good, Republican bad, liberal good conservative bad but to give it credit it mixes it up as well certainly towards the end after Sorkin leaves it does kind of provide it gets to the stage where you have a Republican 
running against a Democrat and you don't know who's going to win. So Jimmy Smith's versus Alan Alder, either of them could be the the lead of the the series replacing Martin Sheen. You don't know who's going to win. And they didn't know who was going to win. It was actually in that series, it was a competition between the actors. So there was a, in the final season, there was a live debate um, and they, they filmed it, broadcast it live between Jimmy Smits and Alan Alder. And at that stage, they didn't know who was going to win the election. The wow. actual actors didn't know who they were going to win, was going to win the election. So the actors were performing an audition to take over the lead of the series. And then they bloody cancelled it. And then they cancelled it. Yeah. But it was cancelled at the right time. It I mean, probably it was. was. I mean, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. the perfect time to How end. How many seasons so did it do? Seven seasons. It's about right. It showed, it's, it's, it's about, it's it's about standard, right. isn't it? Yeah. It yeah. basically showed this presidency. And if it had gone on to be another presidency, it would have been a different programme. So mm. they got it. To, so they showed it up to the point at which that happens. And then it, it does. Yeah. Right? It stops yeah. in the perfect place. They might. There's talk about bringing it back. And it's Aaron Sorkin talking about bringing it back, which oh, wow. means it could be good. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's interesting. There's, there's, that's two shows, West Wing and Breaking Bad. I've started watching Breaking Bad finally, but they're kind of bucket list shows. Yeah. In the same way as, you know, I, I must read Dickens or I must read some Shakespeare. Yeah. Before. Slight, slightly more digestible than Dickens. Mm. But, it does take a lot of... Once you get into the characters, the same with Breaking Bad and things like The Wire yeah. um, and True Detective, once you get into the idea and the characters and almost... and almost It's similar to The Wire in the sense that The Wire is almost like a different language. So if you watch The Wire, you have to actually yeah. start understanding what the characters are saying. I, I did one episode and I yeah. should have kept going. But with The West Wing, it's the same the characters talk so quickly mm. about so many complex things that to start with, you had to let it wash over you. And you, you get just, the rhythm. When they say something, you know it's important because of the way they look. You don't quite know why it's important. You don't quite know what's going on, but you know it's really sort of major. Mm. Um, and you have to sort of ride that wave a little bit. But it does become addictive. Mm. It does become addictive. Mm. Right then, I think that's a good place to call it a day. I hope you both enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, whether listeners do, I don't know. But yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. But next week, we'll be back to talk about something we recorded two weeks ago, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, it's <laughs> that Change Our Mind stories, isn't it? I think it was. Yes. It's the stories where we didn't like them as a kid, and then we found we do as an adult, or vice versa. Hmm. And that's what we recorded a couple of weeks ago, and that's what we'll be back with next week. Until then, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.